It's time to think bigger. Elias Pedersen scores! And think bolder. Matthew Kachuk, what a goal! This is Rintoul and Sermon. Another chance, great save by Markstrom. There is shot be bad, great save by Timko. On the Sportsnet Radio Network. What's going on? How's your Monday? We're going to make it better. That's what we do. Get in on the process. 960-960-650-650. We want your feedback throughout the course of the show. It's Rintoul and not Sermon. It's Jamie Dodd back. Jamie, you are the most consistent part of this show now. Yeah, I was going to say, I haven't been rental and serving for a while. It's no. been quite some time, but I, I am back. I'm sticking around. Everyone is stuck with me on air uh, for at least today. We'll see going forward. But, yeah, I am back. And I am back. And they finally found me. The gig is up. <laughs> the gig is up. Like, I've taken a lot of vacation this summer, and yet still not as much as I would like to have taken. They found me. They said, it's over. Get back on the air. It hasn't quite been the summer of Scott. Like, it hasn't quite been that, like the summer of George reference that I'm throwing in there. Yes. It's more been the summer of Dad. You can relate to that. My wife has had her career start picking up here, and she's into a new job. So I've been more Dad than I've been just, hey, man, this is my time to relax. It's been great, but now this is Dad and Dot. I think that's what we're going to call the show from now on. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm a dad, too, so I, I don't know. I don't know if that's entirely fair that, as a name, but maybe we can we can workshop it for sure. Yeah, we'll see what we do. We'll get a focus group in here. Yes. I'm very glad. I am very glad, Jamie, that as I return to work, there is plenty to talk about. It's always that great fear. You check out a little bit, maybe get off the grid, depending on how you go about your vacation, that you come back and you got to download all of this information. Now, I did pay attention to sports last week and certainly throughout the weekend, and there's a lot to digest. So thank you very much, sports, and specifically, thank you very much, Don Waddell, Tom Dundon, and the Carolina Hurricanes for what we all pine for, unless it is your team being affected. We all want offer sheets, and Jamie, we got one. Yeah, it was. it's like like water for a very thirsty person, right? This, this magnitude of NHL news at this time of the calendar, and specifically, as you say, an offer sheet, kind of the great phantom hope of hockey fans, right? That eventually the offer sheet will become more of a feature of the league. It never seems to happen. And we got one, and it's a really interesting one too. It's not just your run-of-the-mill standard offer sheet where you look at it and say, oh yeah, but the, t- the other team's going to match immediately. This one is very interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of, to like about this. In fact, I love a lot about this. And you're right about the offer sheet, that great phantom hope. Every year you hear an NHL insider say it, or multiple NHL insiders, you know what? I kind of feel like this could be the summer of the offer sheet and then it yep. never actually happens or one gets thrown out there listen Canucks fans had been fearful for quite some time and maybe there are some after seeing this over the weekend that think well maybe Elias Pettersson could still get offer sheeted a lot has to come together a team has to be in the right spot to offer the other team has to be in what would look to be some sort of a financial pinch. And then there's the third component, and it maybe is the most interesting. The player and his camp have to actually say, you know what, let's do it. Let's do it. I would be willing to go to that other team if my team doesn't match. Yeah, that's the third part of it that a lot of people forget about, right? The player has to agree and the player has to think it's an advantageous move for their career, right? Whether the ultimate goal is to go to the team offering the offer sheet or whether it's just to kind of force the original team, force their hand and force them to agree to a deal. You know, whatever the case may be, the player in question has to look at the scenario and say, you know what, this works for me. This puts me in a better position than I otherwise would be in. 
there have been so few offer sheets that most of you out there listening today can probably recall the bulk of them off the top of your head. That's how few there have been. And very few have actually been, you know what, take the player. Like Dustin Penner is the, you know what, take the player, we will take the compensation. But there is a very real possibility that happens here. What I love about this to start with is no one saw this one coming. Elias Pedersen was the name that was out there. Hey, could Seattle in particular offer sheet Elias Pedersen? The expansion draft came and went. We went into free agency. It didn't happen. And people went, oh, I guess that's not going to happen. Pedersen and Hughes, eventually they'll sign. And that's the hopes of Canucks fans right now. But, Jamie, it felt like we were past the point of offer sheets. And that's what I love about this. It comes out of the blue. The timing's actually better. If you think about it from a strategic point of view, if you actually want to land the player, Montreal's done a bunch of business already. Anybody who's paid any attention to Cap Friendly over the last couple of days knows what a bind this puts the Montreal Canadiens in, which is why it's no easy decision to just simply match and do the proud NHL thing of, we will match any offer that comes our way. Right, yeah. It's a great point about the timing, because not only has Montreal taken care of a bunch of, a bunch of their business and you know used a bunch of their cap space in doing so, but there's just less cap space around the league, right? So... Even if Montreal said, okay, look, we're going to match this, but then we have to unload some salary, there's fewer partners that are going to be interested in helping you do that. The price is going to be way up. It's way harder to do that now than it would be in the first week of July, right? So that puts them in even more of a bind because it's not as easy as just, okay, go out and find a way to dump a couple of million dollars here. It's hard to do that at this point in the calendar going into training camp. So that's part of what I love about this, the strategic move by the Canes. And we'll get back to more of the strategy here in just a second. And then we all have a healthy dose of spite, probably if we're not involved (laughs) ourselves. But we like a healthy dose of spite. We all know the last offer sheet that came, and it was between these two clubs. And that was so different than this one. First of all, the timing. We just mentioned why this was strategically a better move by Carolina than what Montreal did a couple of summers ago. They would have loved to have Sebastian Ajo, but they did it early. They did it at a time where Carolina hadn't made a bunch of capital commitments already to players on their roster. They did it on July 1st, and they did it at a number that made it very easy for Carolina to come back and say, we're keeping the player here, guys. You didn't make it difficult enough on us, so this is going to be an easy one. In fact, that felt at the time like Sebastian Ajo and his camp went, we're not getting anywhere. This means... Within a week, we have the contract we want, and probably it's with Carolina. We don't really want to move anyway, so let's go down that road. And you look at that Sebastian Ajo deal that, you know, he he signed the sheet with Montreal and then obviously ends up returning to Carolina when they match. Other than the term of five years specifically, which takes him straight up to his UFA, but other than that, you know, it's not a bad deal, right? Like, you get him for a pretty decent chunk of time. 8.4 8.4 cap hit, which is not bad for a player of Sebastian Ajo's caliber. So it is kind of funny to me that the Car- the Carolina Hurricanes obviously have been nursing a grudge on this one and carrying a chip yes. on their shoulder because things mm. didn't work out that poorly for them. Like, that's not that bad a result that you get Sebastian Ajo for five years at 8.4. I mean, if, I think if anything, the Carolina Hurricanes might have said, oh, okay, fine, we'll take that. That's not a bad That's not a bad deal for us. I get it. He's going to UFA when the contract expires. That's not ideal. But – 
I'm really surprised that they have been, they've clearly been this upset about it for so long, given that it's not that punitive of a deal they ended up getting with Sebastian Ajo. Right, and this is the other part I like about the spiteful angle, which we're all just relishing and bathing in right now over the last couple of days. When David Backus got offersheeted by the Vancouver Canucks, it wasn't long after. It was the next year that St. Louis went, all right, we're going to offersheet Steve Bernier. We'll show you. And the Canucks had to pay more for a player they probably should have let go at the time, but they chose to match just like St. Louis did back in the day, just like Carolina did with Ajo. They waited here. They waited a couple of years, and they waited for an ideal opportunity, and they made sure everybody knew that there was a dose of spite, that it wasn't just about the business transaction, about the player here. We're going to give him a $20 signing bonus. Well, the $20 is in reference to Sebastian Ajo's jersey number. They threw $15 extra onto the 6.1 base salary offer. 15 is Kokinyemi's jersey number as well. Just so everybody's clear... Part of this is out of spite. They made that very clear for everybody to see. Yeah, and Don Waddell mimicked a lot of the language in his release uh, that Mark Bergevin had used during the Sebastian Ajo offer sheet. And that's another interesting layer from the player's perspective, too, right? Because obviously Carolina, like, in the negotiations with Kotkaniemi, they had to say, okay, by the way, we want to include a $20 signing bonus. You can imagine, what are you talking about? Oh, and then they have to explain the whole reason why. It'll be really funny, actually, because we're mad at them for doing this Bachelorado offer sheet, and this will remind everyone about that. And the player and his agent had to agree to that. They had to say, okay, yeah, you're right. That's pretty funny. Let's do it. So that is a, that to me, is kind of revealing of where the dynamic between Kakanyemi and Montreal is, right? That Carolina had to explain everything that was going to happen around the offer sheet and some of the funny details, and the player and his agent said, yeah, sure, sign us up. We're good for that. This is the other thing I like about Carolina. Whether you're a fan of them or not, or whether you detest them or not, they lean into stuff. And they leaned into it with their social media account, which they've done many, many times over the last couple of years. They changed their Twitter account from Carolina Hurricanes to the French equivalent. Like, they played this sucker up. And they went, look, if we're going to go in for a penny, let's go in for a pound. It's great for hockey. We can get into that conversation about teams that are good for hockey and teams that keep things interesting because there's two involved here. Like, we just got a text in here, and you can get in on this at any point during the conversation, 960-960 or 650-650. Mike says, Bergevin is a clown. Happy to see him get some well-deserved Carolina schadenfreude. There are many people that feel that way about Mark Bergevin. But, Jamie, I will argue throughout the program today, any time, quite frankly, that Mark Bergevin is good for hockey because he is trigger-happy, because he does things that are wild swings. And Carolina is no different in that respect. Yeah, and it's funny because, as you said, we got someone in the 650-650 inbox saying, you know, I'm happy to see Montreal get some comeuppance here. And then in 960-960, we immediately get a text that comes in and says, the pettiness from Carolina is so lame. And this is a franchise that has won a lot of fans for their unique approach, and especially in the front office and how they rely on analytics, how they go about their business in a very out-of-the-box way, but also... You know, they've rubbed some people the wrong way with how they do things with the storm surge. That's one fans that's annoyed people as well. They are a very polarizing franchise in the NHL. And maybe this will come back to bite the Carolina Hurricanes. And there might be a lot of people who love that because part of this is out of spite, as we just detailed for you, and everybody can plainly see. And often when you act out of spite and spite alone, it does come back to sting you in some ways. The Martin LaPointe contract to me way back in the day, 
rings of that. Hey, we're going to do this to get you back for something you did to us. We'll show you, well, that contract didn't work out. We can have our arguments right now, and you can get in on that, whether this is actually going to work out for whichever party ends up with Jesperi, Cock, and Yemi. We can also ask you this. What's the craziest thing you've done out of spite? But as <laughs> you talked about, Jamie, this is a difficult decision for Montreal. And we can get into the reasons for that. But Carolina is thinking a couple of steps ahead, at least according to Elliot Friedman. This is an interesting component. This was on the 31 Thoughts podcast from he and Merrick this week in the emergency edition. Here's what Friedman had to say about the offer that's out there, the one-year deal. And, hey, we all know if Montreal says we'll match it, they're going to have to qualify him at that number, assuming they don't come to some sort of extension. Well, Carolina's thinking down the road, not just one year at a time. Have a listen. I had heard that Kotkaniemi and the Canadians were not close on an extension. The Canadians were using the full weight of their leverage against him. I think my guess is they were talking about a two-year deal in about the $2.5 million range per season, uh, maybe even less. And Kotkaniemi wasn't there. He, he didn't want to do that. And I also think that Carolina's got obviously a one-year deal at just over $6.1 million, as Jeff mentioned. My belief is this, that they also discussed, and it's perfectly legal to do this because he was a free agent, even though a restricted free agent, I think they also discussed the potential of what a long-term deal would look like before they signed him to this deal. You know, I think they'd said, okay, if we could do this for term, you know, what would we be looking at? And my guess is that in those conversations, Carolina knows exactly what a long-term deal would look like. And I'm also betting it's not at 6.1 million a year. I think it's less. Now, do I know what that is? No, hmm. but I think that there is an understanding or a definite conversation of what a long-term deal could look like. This is a great layer of this conversation, Jamie, because these two teams were in conversation about player acquisition. They couldn't come to terms on a deal. Carolina finally went, okay, this is the route we're going to proceed. We're willing to do it. We'll stick our necks out there, and whatever happens, happens. They want the player, and apparently they would like the player longer term than just what's on the deal. And, hey, we'll give you the qualifying offer the next year. So if you think about it from that standpoint, if that's, in fact, what happens here, let's say Carolina acquires Kakanyemi. They're paying him $6.1 million this year, but at some point during this season, come January 1st, February, whatever it is, we find out here's a five-year extension for Kakanyemi, and put whatever number you want. Put $4.5 million. Yeah. Well, all of a sudden, this just looks like, a front-loaded deal. Hey, we'll give you big money up front. The AAV is going to be lower than this long-term. Everybody gets what they want here. And hearing that from Friedman when I listened to the 31 Thoughts podcast, it helped this entire thing make a lot, of, a lot more sense to me because initially I looked at it and said, okay, it's great that they've put Montreal in this bind, right, where they have to pay Kakanyemi a huge salary this year, more than he's worth, and then you have to qualify him that next time or else you could go to UFA. But I was thinking, okay, but if Carolina gets him, they're in that same bind. Only they've given up a first and a third to be in that bind, right? And then all of a sudden they have to worry about qualifying him in that number or letting him walk to UFA. It really only makes sense from Carolina's perspective if they are confident that they can do a long-term deal that works for them, right? Because otherwise, again, you're just suffering all of the downside that you're hoping to inflict 
on Montreal. So yes, if they do in fact wind up getting Kakanyemi out of this, I would definitely expect to see an extension. I still think there's a question about is Kakanyemi a guy you want to be giving a five-year deal to at this point in his career? Obviously, it depends what the number is there, but that's the only way it makes sense from Carolina's perspective is if they are confident they're going to get him long-term, not just for this one year. Exactly, and there's a number of things that have to align to make an offer sheet work and to put a team in a bind as Montreal finds itself right now. So the here and now part of that, Jamie, is if Montreal matches, keeps Kakanyemi, pays him $6.1 million, knows it's on the hook to qualify him or have him go to unrestricted free agency next summer. Okay, they're a bunch over the cap. They're very close to the 10% over that you're allotted in the offseason before we get to opening night, and then they're going to have to move some money out. So the math gets a lot more difficult for Montreal in the here and now because they've got Nick Suzuki that they've got to extend after this season as well, and that's where the big money is going to come in. They would prefer to put their cash in his pockets, and no one would question them for doing so. Kokinemi, as you just laid out, there's still questions about the player. What is he in the NHL? Is he a legit second-line center when all comes about? Does he ever develop into a first-liner, which they probably had hoped when they drafted him third overall? Is he a third-liner who can play up to a second? There's a big question mark out there about that. Here's the other thing about this, if you're Montreal, and this is why the decision isn't easy. As Eric Engels pointed out in his piece at Sportsnet.ca, the option is to let him go to Carolina and take the compensation, which is a first-round pick this coming draft and a third-round pick this coming draft. Can you use those assets to acquire a different center at a lower number. And the name that is out there potentially is Christian Dvorak, who a lot of people like. He's in Arizona. We know what they want to do in terms of shedding salary and acquiring draft capital. Is that a possibility moving forward? Yeah, and you you almost feel like it would have to be because whatever you think of Jesperi Kakanemi as a player, and I have my doubts, not that he's a bust or anything like that, but I do think there's legitimate doubts about the upside you also got to go look at the depth chart at center down the middle of the ice for the Montreal Canadiens. And if you take Kakanyemi out of, the, out, of the, out of the equation, it's Nick Suzuki and then a whole lot of question marks, right? This is a team that just lost, lost Phil Deneau, that played big, big minutes for them down the middle, right? You They bring in Cedric Paquette, but how much do you really want, how much ice time do you really want him getting? Again, questions about Kakanyemi, but he's also going to be a really key player for this team given what, they, what else they have at center. So, To Eric Engel's point, and to your point, Scotty, I think you would almost have to immediately turn around and try to flip some of those assets for a different center. And there's a possibility you even come out ahead, right? If you use those assets to get a player that you like more than Kakanyemi at a potentially more reasonable number, that's actually a a win-win scenario for you. It's not that Montreal has pressure to win the Stanley Cup this coming season, but the way they've assembled their roster and some of the decisions they've made in the offseason – they're not looking to take a big step back. They're not looking to reload here. So there is pressure to perform in the here and now, which adds to your point that you better go get somebody. You better go get some center depth if Kakanyemi is going out. This text comes in, and I think it's a good point, and there are people speculating about this as well because there's another big name out there. And I don't know if they would get enough capital to get in on him or not, but Steve from White Rock says, obviously Buffalo would prefer the higher round picks but it would be interesting if acquiring Kakanyemi was part of a master plan to flip him in a package for Jack Eichel. Carolina's the aggressive type of team that would make that happen, Jamie, if Buffalo happens to like the player. And on the flip side, if you're Montreal, what's your phone call like this week if you think you can get a first and a third back and you can use that as part of a package to acquire Jack Eichel? Now, you've got major salary problems 
that right. you got to work out if you do that. So there would have to be cash moving out in a deal like that as well. But if you said, okay, we're going to give you young players and we're going to give you multiple first-round picks, can you work something out with Buffalo? This is the interesting part about the seven days. Mark Bergevin doesn't have to make a decision right away. Quite frankly, he shouldn't make a decision he right won't. away. Yeah. He, he should be figuring out, what do I do if I bring back a first and a third? What can that net me? Which conversations can I get in on? And, you know, it's it's a good point that you bring up the seven days. Because, again, we were kind of talking off the top of the show of all of the re- different reasons why offer sheets don't happen. I think that's a really underrated one, right? Is that you, it, as the team who makes the offer sheet, you've kind of frozen yourself in place for seven days at the mercy of an, a, another team who gets to take all this time to make a decision in response. And you, I would be shocked if Mark Bergevin doesn't let this go the entire seven days, right? While he strategizes, while he plots, while he tries to answer all of these questions that we're talking about, right? And I don't know. I The the problem with from, a, from Montreal's perspective of trying to get in on Jack Eichel, right, is you're going to pick up the phone and call Kevin Adams, and he's going to say, okay, who do you want to give us? Nick Suzuki or Cole Caulfield, right? It's, it, are, are they going to say yes without one of those players involved? And does that almost immediately make it too rich for Montreal's blood? And if so... Are you also able to take on some contract? Are right. you also able to take on something else? Because in order to make the $10 million work, Montreal would have to do a whole lot of heavy lifting. A lot of balls in the air. We're going to talk some NHL throughout the course of the show. Want you involved. And I do want to get into that conversation later about the most interesting teams in the NHL. Because that's part of what added to this for me as a hockey fan, Jamie. That these two teams are always interesting whether you like either of them or not. Yeah, and the general managers involved as well, and especially Mark Bergevin, right? He has a personality that is, as you say, just extremely entertaining, and, and you, you want to see what he's going to do next always. Well, is it even the general manager in Carolina we're talking right. about, or is yeah. it the owner? Is it the Jerry yeah. Jones figure? Friedman kind of referred to that, that that Dundon would be happy to be the Jerry Jones of the National Hockey League and, and have his name out there, and, and that's just fine too. Hockey could use a little bit of that. Yep. Absolutely, it could. It's a different structure, which is interesting, right? As you say, there's always kind of those questions about who's actually driving the decision-making process in Carolina. Compelling conversation. Get in on it. 960, 960, 650, 650 throughout the course of the morning. We're going to have one next. I saw the story. It's a good one. But there is so much more than the headline with Amanda Ruler. We'll tell you who she is and I want to get into her backstory and hear from her. She'll join us next right here on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. It's a fair point, and that's not what I was suggesting. But I understand the point being made. It's Scott Rintoul. It's Jamie Dodd with you here on this Monday morning. Hope your August 30th is off to a great start. We're going to make your day better. That's what we do. A lot of you chiming in already. We appreciate it. 960, 966, 50, 650. Those are the two text numbers. Jamie, this text comes in. I said that Friedman on the podcast, I referenced his shout-out that, hey, Tom Dundon, he wouldn't mind being the Jerry Jones of the National Hockey League. And somebody texts in, LOL, Carolina will never be America's team, Scott. That's true. Like, Carolina's never going to be the Dallas Cowboys enterprise in the National Hockey League. But... Tom Dundon could play the role of Jerry Jones, at least the potential exists there, of the owner who's heavily involved in hockey operations, which is great if you're not a fan of the, of the team that happens to be the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> like, Jerry yeah. Jones keeps it interesting for us, Jamie, but oh, if, yeah. I were, if I were a Cowboys fan like Karen, it would drive me crazy that this is also the general manager. Yeah, no, it's not fun for the fans. And to be fair, you know, just to the texture's point, to be fair to the Hurricanes, 
no hockey team in the U.S. is going to reach the heights of, you know, America's team like the Cowboys and have that sort of cultural impact and footprint in the broader fan base in the sporting world. It's just it, it, one's in the NFL, one's in the NHL, right? It's not going to happen. But yeah, in terms of somebody or you could even go back to like a Mark Cuban in his kind of heyday with the Mavericks, right? An owner who is out there in front of the cameras involved in the decision making process and who really enjoys the spotlight in that way. That's a really good reference. Mark Cuban as well, heavily involved. Up and up and down at games, getting on highlight packs. Jerry Jones doesn't exactly do that, but he's not shy in the media, and he's happy to tell you what he's going to do, and he's going to throw his money around. Jerry Jones is still good for football, Jamie. He might not be good for Dallas Cowboys football, but he's good for the National Football League. Oh, no doubt about it. As we just said, for casual fans, it's great entertainment, right? And some of the sound bites that come out of his mouth, the fact that he gives – press conferences to reporters, like scrums to reporters after every game the Cowboys play. And they ask him about, you know, third down play calls. And, oh, what did you think of the decision to go for it instead of kick a field goal there? And he just says, I didn't like it, or I did like it, or whatever the case may be. It's the owner of the team just going out there and, you know, hanging the coach out to dry after every game, basically. It's incredible. So, in general, I don't want an owner like that who makes himself the GM. And Tom Dundon hasn't made himself the GM, but he made it very clear when he bought the team he was going to be heavily involved in the operation. It was going to be a data-driven enterprise, and that's what it has been in Carolina. In general, I don't want the hands-on, I'm going to have my fingers on this owner, but... I think Dundon's actually been really good for that franchise, Jamie, and he's allowed some people to make some pretty smart decisions along the way. That's another part of it, right? Empowering people to think outside of the box and giving them the tools, giving them the you know, the the security in a lot of ways to make some risky decisions and see how they pan out. It's Scott Rental, it's Jamie Dodd. You can always get involved in the conversation, 960-960-650-650, and we will bring you into it throughout the course of the show today. Speaking of thinking outside the box, it wasn't that long ago, Jamie, that finding a female coach in football was extremely difficult. And now at the most visible level, it's so much easier. And the ratio might not be where we need it to be or where we want it to be quite yet. But the National Football League over the last number of years has brought female staffers on in significant roles. Tampa Bay was front and center with this, with the Super Bowl. You had two full-time coaches who were Super Bowl winners last year with Tampa Bay. And year over year, we see more women getting hired and in the highest league possible at some of the top positions possible. Yeah, at the coaching position, we're starting to see it in the front office and the football operations department as well with Catherine Raich. In Philadelphia, the the latest example, and you're right. It's just it's been a just a consistent upward trajectory of the numbers being hired in the NFL. We've been in this place with this sport and most male sports, quite frankly, for our lifetime, Jamie. Where there was this excuse of, "Well, women don't really want to coach," or how could they add anything because they didn't play the game? And most people have moved long past that. That's a great thing. I'm happy to see it. And our next guest is living proof of that. She is Amanda Ruler. She is now an assistant coach at McMaster University. She'll be overseeing the running backs this year. She was recently hired, and she joins us this morning on Rental and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Amanda, thank you very much for taking the time. How are you? Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I love bringing awareness to women in football, so thank you for having me. No problem whatsoever. And in doing a little research about you prior to this show today, you have always been someone who's spoken her mind and tried to bring awareness to whatever 
sporting endeavor you've been into, whether that's football or some of your other sporting past, correct? Yes. Even when I was a young athlete, I went to football games, CFL games with my parents. And I asked my dad, can, can I play football? He said, you know what? You can do anything you put your mind to. And that includes any sport that a man is part of. So, you know what? I joined every sport I could. I was in Olympic lifting. I was on team Canada, women's world football. I was on team Canada, bobsled and skeleton. I was on my university track team. I've done it all with regards to speed and power And now I put my foot into coaching. I've been doing coaching my entire life. I started with track and field and I started getting football athletes around 10 years ago, CFL athletes. And they said, Hey, you could make a career out of this because you're one of the best coaches I've ever had. So who were those athletes? Who were some of the clients that you've worked with in a past that gave you the confidence to move this career forward? Yeah, even just working um, when I was at the University of Regina, I even worked with some of the guys on the football team, like Akeem Hicks. And he, as you know, he's on the Chicago Bears now, or even Brett Jones or Tavon Campbell. And now I'm working with athletes such as Charleston Hughes, McKenna Henry, who are in the CFL currently, which is awesome. And I was asked to go to a hub football camp in san diego and don Yee, tom brady's agent reached out to me and i've been training nfl um free agency athletes and i've worked with tons of guys like kj kj sales who recently got picked up by the chargers so it's amazing to work with these great athletes and be recognized on a larger scale even working with nfl caliber athletes and cfl athletes amanda as you said you know you've been involved in a lot of different athletic pursuits in your life when did you know that coaching football specifically was something you really wanted to pursue? And what is it about coaching football that makes it so rewarding for you? I've always loved the game. I've loved playing for a really long time. And it was definitely that line where you're like, I'm not an athlete anymore and I have to go into coaching full time. I think just working with the athletes over the past 10 years through speed and power, I said to myself, if I ever stop playing football, I want to be a coach full time. So I went into it just trying to do the best I could. I even asked to volunteer at camps. I've been volunteering for a really long time, but this is the first time I'm able to put a stamp on something. I am part of a full-time staff because no woman has ever been at the youth sport level as an assistant football coach ever. So this is my, my reach out for women being like, you can play, you can work, you can do anything you want within the football industry. And this is huge for Canadian women, let alone the NFL women. My goal is to be the first positional coach within the CFL as a woman. Now, I'm not saying just pick me because I'm a woman. I'm saying I'm doing everything I can now to be qualified to be interviewed for a spot. And one of the things when I was talking to Coach Batezik, who is our head coach at McMaster, this is the first time he ever did a full interview. A lot of the times when it comes to football, it's the next man up. It's your buddy. It's someone that has played. Well, guess what? I have played. Give me an opportunity to interview because I promise you that you won't be disappointed. And, you know, as you said, this is you're the first at the U sports level to hold this position as a woman. And, and as my understanding is that, you know, this is something you've been pursuing, a, a goal you've had in mind for a while, and that there were setbacks and some delays along the way. How difficult was it for you dealing with some of those setbacks in the process? You know what? It was just a bump in the road because a lot of the time, and I will tell you this personally, I'll be very transparent. I was told I can't make it in the industry because I am a woman. And I was told that constantly. But every time I was told that and pushed down, I said, just watch me. So I worked even harder than every one of my male counter, um, 
every time there was another coach that was a male, I worked even harder than him. I attended seminars. I got more education. I attended coaching um, facets where I could, could volunteer, just volunteering for things, not getting paid. So I've done a lot of things. I've, I'm moving across the country to pursue this dream. Now, if anyone ever says that I don't deserve it, I'll prove you wrong because I'm literally uprooting my life to go make my dreams come true. And I, I guarantee you a lot of other coaches would not do that. Amanda Ruler is the running backs coach at McMaster University. She joins us here this morning on Rintuan Sermon with Jamie Dodd. You mentioned Coach Potasic, Steph Potasic, former CFL receiver. He's been coaching at McMaster for a long time. He was in the CFL as well. And full transparency, for one year long ago when they'd let anybody play, he was my position coach at university. I had a very positive experience with him as a coach. He was just getting into the industry. He's been extremely successful. What has been your experience both interviewing with him and now starting to work with him? Oh, my goodness. It's it's been amazing working with Coach P so far. He is a great coach. He doesn't have to say much. As you know, he can just tell you one thing and you're able to correct it very um, quickly. I love working with him. He's a great human being as well as someone to work with. And I think that that counts for something is sometimes they might be a good coach. They might not be a great human being. He has definitely had it all. And I'm so excited to get to know him more as a coach and a human and jive with him on the football field. I agree with you wholeheartedly, and certainly head coaches are in a position where they have the platform to make something like this happen, but you talked earlier about getting acceptance from athletes long before you got this opportunity. It has long been the position, and I happen to agree with it, that professional athletes, people at the highest level of whatever career, they don't care who you are, what gender you are, what you look like. If you can help them, they want in. Has that been your experience with pro athletes as well? Oh, of course. Yes. I, I've, I've been an athlete my entire life. So I gained a lot of respect on the football field because I've played and that I hate saying that as a woman, they only respect me because I've played. You shouldn't always just respect someone because of what they've done, but I'm able to articulate that and bring that on the football field as a coach as well. So I bring both aspects because I have played and because I have coached so long in the field. And that's why a lot of the athletes say, you're one of the best coaches I've ever had because you actually act and listen and ask me what I need as a personal athlete. And I help these men not be great players, men or women, but good human beings off the field as well. And what I can bring to the table as a woman athlete my entire life, I've never been paid. So I had to go through this journey by branding myself and marketing myself and making mother um, money other ways. And that's something I can also bring to these athletes is, is coach them through life. And I think that's a uniqueness I bring to the table. Amanda, what kind of reaction have you had from the football world? Because as, as you said, you know, you've worked with a lot of really high level athletes in the world of football. Have you heard from them when this announcement came out? What, what kind of reaction have you got from people around the world of football in Canada? I've had an amazing reaction. I've actually had a lot of people reach out to me, uh, CFL, NFL, um, all different facets, even Sarah Lesky, which is one of my idols through uh, sports media, reached out to me saying, amazing job. And uh, Damon Allen reached out to me, who I didn't know previously, and now we're good friends because he's saying, I might get you down to the camps because you know he's working with the Raiders now. We have to get you down to an NFL camp. I've had such great response from this. There's no turning back now. I'm full feet in this I'm going to make this a career for my life it is a tough career to get into but if you are someone 
that that is struggling right now, do not give up. Keep going after your dreams, whatever that may be, whether it be coaching, whether it being an, an athlete in the NFL or CFL, just go for it. Keep seeing the avenues you can get. And you might have, you know, somewhere along the way, some people might say you shouldn't go for that because of who you are, no matter what that is. Keep going. Work past it. You know, Amanda, you mentioned Damon Allen reaching out to you and he's doing some work down in the NFL. And one of the things we've seen in the NFL is they have kind of rapidly over the last number of years, we've seen a lot of women get hired on the sidelines in the NFL and also starting to see it in the front offices, in the league offices. We've seen that south of the border in the NFL, but I think the progress has been a lot slower in the CFL and in new sports as, as well, as you mentioned has that been frustrating for you to see it kind of take off a little bit in the NFL, but not get as much traction in the CFL so far? This is why I love to be an advocate for women within football, because the Canadian industry does frustrate me quite a bit. Within the NFL, we see 19 women coaches in positions. And like you said, we see some within um, Catherine Rach. She is from Montreal. She um, ended up volunteering for um, the Alouettes and look where she is now. There is nothing here in Canada for volunteer opportunities with the CFL because trust me, I have been asking, I've been trying. I'm from Saskatchewan. I've even tried to go through the back door by doing Saskatchewan media for the Rough Riders. And it's so hard to get into the industry because they just keep closing and closing and closing the door saying, I don't know anything. There's no opportunities. There's no internships, even at the youth sport level. And I'm so happy that they have this apprenticeship for women because finally, finally, one of us, one of us women can get our foot in the door and gain those contacts we need. Because like I said, none of these in the football industry, especially in Canada, it's the next man up. It's the next, my buddy's coming through there. My buddy played in the CFL. He played within U sport. I don't have that opportunity to play in U sport. So how do I make these contacts? How do I get into the industry without just doing an interview? I think it's a great point, right? And as you say, you know, so often it's the guy that you used to play with or the coach who's been on staff and you give them the next position that's open. And I can imagine how frustrating that is. What was different about this opportunity at McMaster? How did it come together? And what, what do you think kind of spurred them to actually think a little bit outside the box and reach out to you? I love McMaster because they think outside of the box more than any university that I've ever experienced so far. They want to do more of a, um, a diversification and look into how they can make women more involved because all of the coaches have daughters. So, they, you know what they thought? Hey, let's open a women's apprenticeship program. And they put it out there. And I applied. I did the interview. I, I even made a presentation for the interview. And through that, I was one of the best candidates to be considered. And through that, I thank them for making that big leap, that big step and other universities have reached out to them to even do this next year or make this happen for their university because they see they're always asking, why aren't women interested in coaching? Why aren't women football in general? Why aren't women playing? And I love asking those questions because then we can dive into why this is a thing and we can get some answers and we can open up apprenticeships and opportunities for women to get involved in the game. Well, you're talking to a couple of girl dads this morning, and our messaging is very similar to that of your father with our daughters as well. Amanda Ruler joining us here this morning. Running backs coach with McMaster University. She's on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Now, I wanted to focus on your coaching career and this opportunity for you through most of the interview, but I found your own athletic career extremely compelling, so I can't let you go without asking about that. You talked about playing pro football in the LFL and playing for Team Canada. You were a CIS sprinter, as it was called back in the day. 
you also tried out for the WWE. Tell me about that experience. <laughs> Take me through what that was like. Of course I can. So I was the Riders game day in-game host, which is really cool. And from there, someone had seen me to come try out for uh, WWE because I'm really good on the microphone. <laughs> and I got flown to the training facility training facility in Orlando and I got to go through like a month of hell like we did uh three a days basically of lifting weights we were in the ring they're running us until we puked but it was so much fun to get that experience and what I further learned I was the only Canadian that year that was asked to come try out amongst all these Americans and all these people that were already in wrestling but the first day I was there I had to cut a promo and if you guys don't know you have to come in with a character but I didn't have one because I didn't do indie wrestling. So I come up and I said, you know what? I'm going to cut you a real life promo because this is my real life. And I just talked about my struggles through um, football and, and um, weightlifting and trying to go be on the Olympic team and not making it and finally figuring out, you know what? I need to be part of something that's bigger than myself. And it was amazing to get the feedback that I was really good on the mic they hadn't t- taken anyone from our group, which was too bad, but they still have my number, so WWE you can call me anytime. Wow, you're a little busy now with this coaching opportunity and diving full, <laughs> yeah. full-fledged into that. So Olympic bobsled and skeleton you tried. You tried powerlifting Olympic style as well. WWE, you played football. You were a sprinter. There's probably more sports I'm not even mentioning. What is the most difficult sport, in your opinion, that you've ever tried? Oh my goodness. Uh, that's a really great question. I would say Olympic lifting just because it's so, cause you're on your own and it's so technical. Like if you don't put in the work, you're not going to get the results and you don't, you can't rely on a team. Olympic lifting is so tough as you know, it's comprised of snatch and clean and jerk. And I rise to the ranks of fifth within the country. And I was trying to make, you know, the Canadian team and the Olympic team, but it, it definitely was difficult during the pandemic so I wasn't able to, but I still hold my uh, Saskatchewan records for snatch and clean and jerk, which is, which is amazing for my size. And I'll continue to do Olympic weightlifting and hopefully make that team coming up. Speed and power, that's what it's all about in those lifts, and that's what running backs are all about as well. So those players that are under your watch are going to be in very good shape because I know you'll have them in the gym doing that. The, oh, athletic, yeah. <laughs> the athletic career, Amanda, is very impressive to say the least. But let's talk about the Price is Right. You were on the Price is Right as well. I watched the show growing up. <laughs> Take me through that experience, too. Of course. How could I leave without talking about that? Um, I had gotten free tickets online, and I went with a couple friends to The Price is Right. And so funny, we just had sat down, and they were calling up the first row of people, and my name was the last name, and I could not believe it. said, Amanda Ruler, come on down. I hopped out of my seat, and I ran up, and they brought some items up. Um, I believe it was a laptop and um, a stereo system, and they said, everyone bid. So I bid last. I was like, you guys are all over. I bid a dollar because I'm that person. But I won and I got to go up on stage. So I played this game called High Low where you roll the big novelty dice. And they said, Amanda Ruler, you could win a car. And I rolled the dice correctly. And I won a car out of everything. And I got to go to the showcase showdown. Unfortunately, I did bid over on that one. But I walked away with the car that day, which was amazing. That's awesome. And you wore a Canadian headband as well, which was awesome. A bandana that had Canadian Maple Leafs on it. So I love that too. I did. It's funny because when I had watched the show later, like because it, it takes a while for it to come out on TV, the thumbnail for that show was me flexing with the Canadian bandana. 
And Drew Carey actually tweeted it out. He said, you're not going to want to miss this episode. This girl is full of muscle. So it was amazing to see Drew Carey tweet that out. That's awesome. Hey, Amanda, your story is a great one. Thank you so much for sharing it with us here today. We continue to look forward to the next chapter. All the best, McMaster, this fall. I know you guys don't get started for a few more weeks, despite the fact there were some U Sports games over the weekend. All our best, and thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. I just want to leave on one note. Just mm-hmm. everyone out there, encourage your daughters to be in any sport that they want to growing up, and that's all I have to say. <laughs> Perfect. I'm going to play that for my own daughters. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you. <laughs> okay, thanks. That's Amanda Ruler. She's the running backs coach at McMaster University. She's effervescent with her personality yep. as well, Jamie. I'm glad to see her get this opportunity. I happen to know the coach in question. As I mentioned, part of my own career, Steph Potasic was a position coach for me. I always hope for good things for him. I'm happy to see that he is the guy behind this hire. They actually hired two females to come on their staff this year. And it sounds to me like it, when you do the research on Amanda, like why wouldn't she get an opportunity somewhere? Right. And you heard that, you know, her resume is impressive. And just the fact that you can be, you know, a high level sprinter and an extremely high level weightlifter at the same time, like, as you said, okay, speed, power, that's what running backs are looking for. She knows how to generate those two things. And she has a history of doing it as a coach and of helping people do it as a coach as well. And here's the thing I also know about this coach. And I said this about Dave Dickinson the last time I was on the air when he was trying to decide on who his starting quarterback was going to be. And it looks like he made a pretty good call. Like Jake Mayer's been pretty good for the Calgary Stampeders in his first couple of starts, despite the fact the Stamps fell short last night. When you get the call from Dave Dickinson, you know you've earned it. And I feel the exact same about Steph Potasic. That program at McMaster has been extremely successful. This isn't tokenism. It's providing opportunity, but it's also seeing value in what Amanda can add to this program. Yeah, and and as you mentioned, you know, if anyone thought that this movement in football specifically was about tokenism, I think the lessons and examples from the NFL should dispel that notion pretty quickly, right? Like some of the most successful teams, as you said, the Super Bowl champion Tampa Bay Buccaneers on the forefront of it, right? And Teams wouldn't be rushing to copy that and emulate that if they didn't think it could help them have success. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing from McMaster here. You know, I'm glad Amanda spoke a little bit to the frustration of seeing it progress more quickly in the NFL than it has in the CFL and in youth sports. But I do think it's the kind of thing where one successful and respected program does it. All of a sudden, a lot of other teams around the country are going to look at the situation and say, hey, why aren't we thinking like this? Good interview, good first hour back, and we'll roll into the second hour as well. Speaking of rolling it in, man, he was throwing darts yesterday. It was part of a fantastic finish, and yet somebody had to kind of ruin it. At least one somebody, in my opinion. I'll tell you who that was sort of next right here on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dot. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. Yep, that's a classic. Right there. If you're after more classic rock, you're going to find the perfect mix in the Classic Rock Essentials playlist on Apple Music from the 60s and 70s all the way to the 90s. Listen to the Classic Rock Essentials playlist on Apple Music. It's Scott Rentoul alongside Jamie Dodd today. 
Really good first hour. I see some of the complaints on one of our stations. As you know, we're on both sides of the Rockies. Jamie, on one of our stations, we had some technical difficulties. So a lot of people on the West Coast may have missed. If they were listening on traditional AM radio, 650, if you may, if you missed a bunch of our first hour, that entire first hour, including what was an excellent interview with Amanda Ruler, who's the running backs coach at McMaster University, that will be available for you on our podcast today at sportsnet.ca slash either 960 or slash 650. And I'm going to take great precautions to knock on wood here as I say this, but apparently we are back on air uh, clear and, and crystal clear uh, on Sports at 650. So hopefully we've got all those problems sorted out now. Yeah, probably my fault. I was off a lot. Probably. I, I yeah. probably screwed up the signal as well <laughs> before I got back. Man, signals were not crossed yesterday at the end of the BMW Championship. I talked about a fantastic finish. What an incredible ending to that tournament. The last time I was on air, Jamie, which was a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about a six-man playoff at the Wyndham, and then yesterday we get a six-hole playoff at the BMW Championship yesterday. And both guys playing just some tremendous golf to extend it and, and making some mistakes to extend it as well at different points. But it was great drama and great theater after a really entertaining tournament overall, and especially on the weekend, I thought. Well, and here's yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And Bryson DeChambeau shoots the lowest score ever not to win a tournament, which is yep. a dubious distinction as he loses in the sixth hole of the playoff. Just couldn't get the flat stick working on some of those first playoff holes. And Patrick Cantley, could he miss? Could he miss yesterday with the putter? No. No, he was on fire. The bomb he drops to win the tournament... That's no sure thing, but the way he was going, and you heard the announcers along the way, they said, don't be surprised if he makes this, just the way that he's going with the putter right now. Now, if you're a golf fan, you're probably not a huge Cantlay or DeChambeau fan. I, I might be misrepresenting our audience, Jamie, but neither of these players among the fan favorites. Let's put it that way. Yeah, that's fair to say. And I mean, especially we got a strong, strong sense of that as far as Bryson DeChambeau is concerned. And, you know, it's funny because you said he didn't have the putter working, which is true. He missed some really makeable putts. I mean, he missed one, I think it was about six feet, that would have given him a 59 on 18 on Saturday. Missed some bad putts in the playoff as well. But there was also points where I think he, he drained like a 50-footer for an eagle at one point on Saturday or Sunday. Like, he was making them as well, and then he was just missing these really short, baffling putts. But you're right. DeChambeau and Cantlay, it is not – they have not done a lot to endear themselves to the – golfing crowd really and yet it tells you something about DeChambeau that there seemed to be more support from the gallery for Patrick Cantlay who yep. again isn't terribly popular among golf fans but he apparently is not as polarizing as Bryson DeChambeau no that I think what we have seen definitively and maybe you could put I, I don't know maybe there are other potential people you could put in this category but right now among the elite golfers Bryson DeChambeau is the most polarizing guy out there on the field are you a Bryson DeChambeau fan? I wouldn't say I'm a fan necessarily in that I'm going out there rooting for him to win tournaments. I enjoy watching him, and I don't have the same level of distaste that I think a lot of other people do. Yeah, I wouldn't consider myself a Bryson DeChambeau fan. I'm fascinated by him because of the way he approaches the game, and it's very different. And while I don't agree with everything he does or I don't find myself on board with everything he does – I'm not sure that he warrants the level of disdain that he's getting these days 
Fair. Yeah, that that's what I where I kind of land on it too. I understand it. There's a certain amount of arrogance with the way he's gone about things. There's a certain amount of hubris that's always going to run run people the wrong way. But he's also just a guy who's trying to figure out ways to get better at his sport, right? And, and who takes it really, really seriously and works really, really hard at it. And again, sometimes it might be a little much. It might be a little ridiculous. He's obviously not the smoothest, most charismatic person. But he also doesn't come off as a jerk to me, right? As someone who's kind of mean-spirited and, and the, you know, you want to root against them for those reasons. So I think I get it and I understand, you know, the, the rivalry of Kepka and Kepka for some people is a lot more likable. So that's maybe swayed people. But it does seem like it's reached a fever pitch around Bryson that is kind of disproportionate to whatever you think his actual sins are. Right. I think it's a good way to explain it, Jamie. You might not root for him. But you also don't have to jump the shark with your fan behavior. And look, none of our listeners are at these events, so I'm I'm certainly not singling out anybody there. Good read right now at ESPN. There's a really good read up there. It's by Kevin Van Valkenburg, who was following that group yesterday, and he witnessed something that happened after the round. Now, those two players, no matter what you happen to think allegiance-wise for them, they put on a hell of a show yesterday. That was fun. Yeah. If you're a sports fan, that was fun to tune into. You know, the fifth fifth playoff hole sticks out in my mind, even though it's not the one that decides it, it's the sixth. That fifth playoff hole where they went, they went to 17, and it's the par three, and DeChambeau steps up and hits a dart at the green. He went, man, that's, that's an incredible shot. I think he's going to win this tournament. And Cantley steps up next, and he puts it inside DeChambeau's yeah. shot, and they both make birdie, and they force. Like, it was just a great exhibition. It was fun for golf yesterday. It was as entertaining as a, a playoff can be, really, right? Like, taking, as you say, okay, Bryson DeChambeau sets the bar with an incredible shot on 17 on the fifth playoff hole. Cantley steps up and beats it, right? And it had seemed that was the theme of the playoff, right? You, It felt like one guy had it in the bag. Then it, either he goofed up and extended it, or the other player did something incredible to stay alive. So as a sports fan, this is a, the way I approach it. I might not be cheering for either of them. I might not be cheering for DeChambeau. I might not be a DeChambeau fan. But at some point, I just have to tip my hat and say, well, thank you as a sports fan for what you guys did on the golf course. And, and maybe I'm not going to become a card-carrying member of your fan club, but that was fun to watch. That was pretty great. And I thought that's how most people would have approached it. So Van Valkenburg has this read up right now, and what he witnessed afterward jumps the shark for me. And I'm not advocating malice in the palace type stuff here, but there are some people who might deserve a punch in the mouth at, at a time. You don't have to give it to them, but they might deserve it. So they're leaving the sixth playoff hole. The guy's had an incredible tournament, DeChambeau I'm talking about here. He's just gone to a sixth playoff hole. He's put on this spectacle, helped put on this spectacle for golf fans who were there. And somebody decides to yell at him after DeChambeau goes past. So it's kind of that, well, I don't want to do it to his face, so I'm going to wait. He waits until DeChambeau's past him walking to go sign his card. But he knows that DeChambeau can hear him. And he yells, great job, Brooksy! And DeChambeau spun around. And I guess, according to the report, he spun around like out of that quick anger reflex. And he began briefly walking in the direction. Then he just had security get the guy out of there. Like, get him out of here. That, to me, has jumped the shark. Now you're trying to rub it in. Now you're trying to demean someone with that type of fan behavior and making it about you. And 
and the context I think is important. And I agree with you. It's like, come on, what are you doing? As you said, this guy just put on an incredible show. It's not like he did anything untoward, you know, to Patrick Cantlay or anything. It's not like he was cheating out there or being a jerk. He was just playing golf and putting on a great show. Why are you trying to get in his business and tick him off like that? And I think the important context is, you know, you might hear it and say, ah, what's the big deal? Someone yelled out the name of your rival to you, whatever. But as, as Van Valkenburg points out in his column, you know, that was kind of a never-ending course on the weekend for Bryson DeChambeau. People yelling at him in from the gallery about Brooks Kepka, People cheering his poor shots, right? Doing all of that, trying to get under his skin. So that was just kind of the straw that almost broke the camel's back because he had been hearing it constantly over the weekend at the tournament. Like, there's a time and a place for some of this stuff. And when it started out between Kepka and DeShambo, it seemed kind of fun. And DeShambo was kind of playing along. Even that photobomb that he had after the initial viral video of Brooks Kepka went out rolling his eyes and not a big fan of, of DeShambo. And we started to see a little more about the beef. You remember DeShambo photobomb? Yeah. <laughs> It, and that was kind of fun, and people were having a good time with it, and it feels like maybe the joke's gone a little too far, or maybe some people need to check themselves a little bit here. And I feel like part of it is just that Bryson does not have the kind of personality and smoothness that you need to pull this kind of thing off on social media, which is really where it plays out most of the time. You know, you need to have a certain type of personality to be able to, to sustain it without it ever crossing a line or getting getting weird like it has, right? And, you know, he's just not really built for that. That's fair. A lot of people aren't, right? That's totally fine. He's a professional golfer. It's not his job necessarily to be entertaining and funny and smooth on social media. But it's almost like he tried in certain ways to to rise to the level of Brooks Kepka, and it almost backfired. It just didn't work. And Kepka has kind of stepped back from it. I think partly that's because they have the Ryder Cup coming up, and they're both going to be on the team together. So you don't really want that storyline dominating when you're going into the Ryder Cup. But for whatever reason, Kepka has almost left the picture a, a little bit, except as a way for fans to annoy Bryson DeChambeau. So where this actually comes to is, okay, what's acceptable? What's within reason? And what as an athlete, in this case DeChambeau, what should you have to put up with? Because according to Van Valkenburg, as he goes on with the report, throughout the round, there were the great job Brooksy or great shot Brooksy, that type of comment throughout the course of the round. And it sounds like throughout the final round, it rolled off his back. Whether he was annoyed by it or not, he kind of let it go, and he just got on with his business. But there are these moments as a human being where, all right, maybe just lay off a little. And it feels like that's where this particular fan stepped into. Fan interaction with players was in the spotlight in baseball this weekend as well. And it's a different story. and You, you might feel differently about this one or not. But you saw what happened between the Mets and their fans over the course of the weekend, Jane. Yeah, I sure did. This one to me is it's more just bizarre. I'm not sure I could ever recall something quite like this. For our listeners who, you know, didn't catch the story, the Mets have started giving the the thumbs up, or sorry, the thumbs down signal back to the dugout in, in moments where they get big hits, right? So, you know, you hit the RBI double, and you're on second base, and your teammates are clapping for you in the in the dugout, and, and you give the thumbs down signal. And it came out 
after the game yesterday that the reason they're doing it, they're trying to give the thumbs down to the fans in the stands because their fans have been booing the Mets who've been playing terribly recently in August and kind of cost themselves a shot at the playoffs. But they're actually doing it as a message of disapproval to the fans. I'm not sure I can recall another example of a sports team, a professional sports team, basically come out and saying, we're ticked off at our fans and we are showing our disapproval and our frustration with our fans on the field of play. The one that jumps to mind when you describe it in that manner, do you remember the Leafs a number of years ago? And I believe Dion Phaneuf was the captain at the time, and they always saluted their fans with the sticks raised in the air, yep. and they decided not to do it. They were pissed off at the fans, and that's how they showed their displeasure, and it was a big thing in Toronto a bunch of years ago. Yeah, no no kidding. It was a big thing in Toronto. You don't say that that kind of thing generated some controversy in Toronto. That's a good example, though. You're right. It doesn't happen that often. Let's get to what they're saying because I want to hear from Javi Baez before we give our opinions on this. Let's go, Greg. So the fans have been booing the players in New York, and obviously it's frustrating to the players, and Javi Baez decided he was going to fire back a little bit. Hits the big hit, hit, has the big hit yesterday, gives them the thumbs down. Selly, like, yeah, what do you think of me now? How do you like it? He was asked about it post game. Actually, had his kids sitting on his lap when he was doing his post game meeting. Here's what he had to say: It's the booze that we get, you know. We like, we're not, we're not machines. We're gonna struggle, you know. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna struggle seven times out of out of ten, and and you know, it just, it just feels bad when 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 we strike out. When I strike out and I get booed, you know, it doesn't really get to me. But like, I want, I want to let them know that. When we success, we're gonna do the same thing to to know how to to let them know how how it feels, you know. Because if we win together, then we we gotta to lose together, you know. And 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 the fans are really big part of it. So, um, in my case, they they gotta be better, you know. I, I play for the fans and I love the fans, but you know if if they're gonna do that, they they just putting more pressures on the team, and and that's not that's not what we want. So, are, is that a thumbs down to fans then? Yeah, yeah. I mean, to let them know that that when we when we don't get success, we're gonna get booed. So we they're gonna get booed when we, when we success. It's an idealistic world to think that you're always going to have unwavering support from your fan base, Jamie. We talked about what should players have to put up with, what's acceptable, what's not. I'm not saying go out there and boo players all the time, boo your team all the time, but it is one of the only things to me, that falls in the acceptable realm because I'm not down with yeah. throwing stuff at players. I'm not down with personal attacks. But this is the form of expressing displeasure as a paying as a paying public saying, look, this isn't good enough. We deserve a little bit better than this. I'm sorry, Javi Baez. It might not be good, and you guys are human beings, and I get all of that. That's something you're just going to have to deal with. I agree, and I, I have no problem whatsoever with fans booing their team. And I, and I don't know, you can kind of start splitting hairs and say, well, is this, is this an appropriate time to be booing? What are you really booing? All of that. But you're right. You come to the thing. You pay your tickets. You get to boo. And I agree with you. Throwing things, doing anything like that, personal attacks, that's out of bounds for me. Booing clearly in bounds. This text comes in 
uh, to the 960-960 inbox. Sorry, Mets. The fans pay for those tickets. They work hard for their money. They're spending it on you. If you play bad ball, you get booed. Well, take it as we need to get paid better. You're getting paid. Or so we need to get better because you're getting paid good money to perform. I think that's how the vast majority of fans see it, right? Hey, we're, we're going expecting a certain level of play on the field. And if we don't get it, if we don't get that entertainment level, that quality of play, we're going to let you know about it. I got to admit, I find, I don't quite know what to make of this whole situation because the fact that, you know, even heard Javi Baez say in that clip, like, hey, the fans got to do better. It's such a perfect mirror of the way you and I and the way fans talk about athletes, right? Like, hey, you know, I, I have nothing against this player, but he's just got to do better in that situation. I almost can't believe that it's happening, that this high-profile athlete is just coming directly out and saying the fans have to be better. I don't. It's not that I agree with it. I'm somewhere between agreeing with it and outraged about it. I don't really feel either way because I completely agree that the fans have every right to boo, but I think I'm just so impressed with the the brashness of it from the Mets that I can't find it in myself to get completely outraged at them either. The fans pay to watch. They pay the salaries. Players may not like it. Suck it up. Be a pro. That comes in from R12. We like to think the fans pay the salaries. The owners pay the salaries. The fans pay the owners. We can argue about that, but I understand the point. And look, if this is motivation in the clubhouse, use it as such. For the most part, the Mets have dealt with this pretty well along the way because it's been going on for a while. Kevin Pillar was yep. front and center recently. Like this is this is a team that's had the owner come out and take shots at them along the way, oh, yeah. not just the fans. No, yeah, no. There's been there's been plenty of kind of bad blood and hard feelings in in New York and with the Mets around now. Sometimes you got to deal with it. And the other part of this that was interesting, the Mets came out with a statement and said they don't condone what Javi Baez did either. They didn't take the backs of the players here. They had the backs of the fans. Exactly, right? They 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 didn't want to associate themselves at all with what the players were doing. And I think it's interesting as well. You know, one of the other players involved, of course, is Francisco Lindor, who is not living up to the massive contract they gave him at all. So there's already some kind of anger between the fans and Francisco Lindor. And I thought it was interesting. You're right that the higher up you go in the organization – the more you hear, man, we don't like this at all. We're on the side of the fans. Did you say massive contract? I think you did, which makes me think of Jack Eichel. $10 million per if he's playing, and he's not going to be ready for opening night because he hasn't had any type of procedure as of yet as they are to stalemate still medically in Buffalo, and they are to stalemate with regards to moving him as well. Part of the emergency podcast that was really interesting, after they talked about the Kakanyemi offer sheet, what does Montreal do? A conversation we will have a little bit later again in the show today, Jamie, was Elliot Friedman breaking some news that there was a really big meeting in Buffalo recently. Have a listen. There was a meeting in Buffalo. I might have my days off because I was up at the cottage. I think it was Wednesday the 18th. There was a big meeting in Buffalo. The league was there. The Players Association was there. Eichel was there. His reps were there. That was still when he was with Peter Fish. And the Sabres were obviously there. I'm not sure if the Sabres were, the doctors were there in person or via Zoom, I don't know that 100%, but I think everybody put their cards on the table. And I think the Players Association wanted to hear it, everything firsthand, and I think the league wanted to hear everything firsthand. And basically what I heard was there was no resolution. Everybody laid everything out, and I think they're still, the Sabres position hadn't changed. As a matter of fact, 
like I heard that everybody was still pretty dug in and we're still waiting to see where this is going to go. And maybe that's one of the reasons too, that Eichel made the change. Maybe, like I said, he needed to try the velvet glove instead of the hammer. We'll see. Mm -hmm. But one of the reasons I hadn't reported it yet until you just dragged it out of me, like under the form of torture um, (laughs) is that I was trying to find out what the resolution was. And as far as I understand, there hasn't been a resolution. Like, nothing changed. The Sabres stayed in their position. Eichel stayed in his position. And the league and the player association supported the player. And the league supported the organization in the CBA. So, I don't know that anything changed. Pretty interesting stuff here, Jamie. One that Jack Eichel changed agents over the weekend. Pat Brisson, the power broker that he is in the National Hockey League. Maybe he can get a deal happening more quickly than anyone else. At least that's what Jack Eichel is betting on. But the fact that there were PA representatives, the Sabres, Eichel, his camp, and at the time, different representation, but the league involved, that tells you that everybody here wants some resolution sooner rather than later. Yeah, ex- that, unless it involves them moving off their position. That's where they are right now. Okay, exactly. we all want a resolution, but we want it on our terms, and we're not willing to be flexible in those terms. It's an interesting point that Elliot brought up there that, you know, at a certain point, the league has an interest in making sure a young, extremely talented American star like Jack Eichel is playing, right? And, okay, it's not going to be for the start of the season now, but the league should want him on the ice sooner rather than later. I got to wonder if another now potential pressure point here from Jack Eichel's perspective is, you know, we've started to hear some rumblings just last night from various different insiders that an agreement to send NHL players to the Olympics could be imminent, right? And that that will actually come to fruition. And if you're Jack Eichel, hasn't had the opportunity to represent his country at the Olympic level yet. Don't you want to be healthy and in, you know, in great game shape by the time February rolls around to make sure you have a chance to be a part of that process too? Agreed. And it's a really good point that you bring up. And I imagine that's the biggest frustration on Eichel's part. Listen, he put himself in the place where he asked out. And a lot of it has to do with the distrust now, with the medical situation, Buffalo's doctors compared to the doctor he wants to go with. But, man, this guy's been wanting to get a procedure for months now. Yep. I can only imagine how frustrating that is. And apparently he's in Montreal right now, and there's nothing to it as far as, hey, he's going to end up with the Canadians, at least not right now. He's there as part of the BioSteel camp, and he's doing off-ice stuff. He's not participating in any on-ice stuff right now. But I can only imagine the frustration where you've been sitting there for months, you got injured, and it hasn't quite been a calendar year, but we're getting close to that. And you've been sitting there going, look – I need to get my body right. I rely on it for what I do. Let's make this happen. And you're in a disagreement with what to do medically, and you can't get back on the – man, that must be infuriating. Yeah, it would be incredibly frustrating, especially now that you're you know, you're, you're costing yourself games. or Not costing yourself, but the whole process is potentially costing him regular season games, right, because of the recovery time, even if he did get traded tomorrow. you know, There's a certain amount of steps that have to play out before he can suit up for his new team. Like, it's one thing to have to walk back your request to be traded like Vladimir Tarasenko might have to do and walk back into that dressing room and suit up for the Blues and say, all right, I got to do this for a while, and then eventually they'll move me, and we'll get to where we need to go. Eichel can't even do that. Like, he can't just walk back the request because this involves a medical procedure that he believes in on one side and the Sabres don't believe in. No, he's committed. And I've said this a few times on air in recent weeks, but I also find it a little strange from the Sabres perspective that they're not trying to get this done quicker because I just think 
the sooner they get it done, the more teams are still going to be interested in it. And yeah, there's always going to be teams interested in Jack Eichel. I get that. But if you're losing him for a massive chunk of the season as the acquiring team, that's got to drive the price down a little bit, I would think. But Buffalo seems content to wait this one out. You can always get in at 960-960 or 650-650. We opened this hour talking about a fantastic finish. It wasn't the only one. Golf wasn't the only thing that had that. We'll get into that next. And did I see what I thought I saw yesterday? I'll explain on the other side. Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. I'll take the hit on this, Jamie. I asked Greg to tee up this tune. Did you see this yesterday in Winnipeg? I don't think so. 74-year-old Fred Penner, who you're listening to here. Let's go. He did the halftime show in Winnipeg yesterday. He was a part of it. (laughs) Massive. Massive. That is amazing. That's very good. Yeah, like it's a choice. And I know when you hear that, there are people out there going, are you kidding me? They put Fred Penner on? And I, the more you think about it, and when I saw the viral video and the people in the stands in the peg interacting and sing along, I went, yeah, you do you. Whatever works. I thought it was great. That is very good. And, you know, it got me thinking, you know, uh, Rafi, beloved, yeah. you know, children's uh, artist, recording artist, uh, I believe is a Canucks fan. I, I know he follows some of the personalities at, at 650, 650, you know, gets in on the conversation occasionally. So maybe the Canucks could explore uh, bringing Rafi in to do some intermission entertainment at some point this year. I would suggest this is outside the box of your traditional halftime entertainment at a yes. CFL football game. At a football game? Yeah, normally not going the Fred Penner route. Do you have a favorite halftime activity at a game? Like, you know, whether it's college football or any, like, do you like the big stage production where they bring in a band that you might like? Do you like the marching band that you see in college football? Do you like it when they bring out the super dogs or something like that? Where are you at? You know, marching bands are pretty great. Some of the routines and the creativity you see out of college football in the States from the marching bands are awesome. I mean, when I'm at a game, I always enjoy when they when they get the kids out there playing whatever sport it is that you're watching. Like, that's always fun for me. And people get to cheer for the kids. You know, one of them scores a goal, and they get a big round of applause. I always really enjoy that. As do I. And yet I would say it's not as entertaining as mascot soccer. Have you ever witnessed mascot yeah. soccer? Mascot soccer is very good. It is because there are inevitably a number of mascots out there where the costume is too bulky or whoever's in the costume can't quite see right. There's a mascot that loses its head. There's the one that doesn't quite know where to go. It gets a little physical at times because some of the mascots want to show that they can play really, really well, and so they're knocking other mascots down. It's hilarious, quite frankly. Yeah, it's good. You know what I saw once at – uh, halftime of a Whitecaps game that I really enjoyed. And they didn't come up with us. I've seen it done other places. But it was three Whitecaps players who, you know, weren't weren't even on the bench. They are in the reserve squad for the day. It was three Whitecaps players versus, like, 110-year-olds or something. It was liter- and, like, literally 110-year-olds come streaming onto the field from the tunnel. And it's like, okay, see who can score more, the three professional players or the 110-year-olds. That was pretty entertaining. Man, now we're talking about those types of, hey, would you rather fight a giant duck or yeah, exactly. 100 tiny ducks? Like with those exactly. conversations. It was basically that conversation in a soccer context. It was great. Yeah, that's basically why we decided we would talk some CFL football this morning with John Hodge, <laughs> who writes for Three Down Nation and joins us here today. John, thank you very much for joining us. How are you? I'm doing great, boys. How about yourselves? We are doing very well. Were you singing along with Fred Penner yesterday? <laughs> 
Always. That man sings about sandwiches, and I'm, uh, I'm extremely passionate about sandwiches. I'll put it that way. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Look, we're three weeks into the Canadian Football League season, and we got some really good finishes, not the least of which was yesterday in Winnipeg. Comes down to the final minute, and you see one field goal to take the lead, and another fall just short as the Stamps end up on the wrong side of that game. Overall, through three weeks of this CFL season, where are you at with, re- with regards to the product? Well, I, I think this week showed some positive signs of, of moving in the right direction uh, in terms of on-field, off the field. Obviously, the Edmonton Elks had some major COVID-19 headaches. But, you know, on, on the field, given the fact that there was no 2020 season, given the fact that there was no preseason in 2021, uh, I thought week one was actually pretty impressive for the CFL. All things considered, the games were all uh, I thought relatively well played given the circumstances. I was a little bit uh, let down, I would say, by week two and week three overall. I didn't think that those those weeks were as strong. But I think we are starting to see the offenses kick a little bit more. I was really encouraged by what we saw from the Ticats. Hamilton came in as the consensus Grey Cup favorite. Looked horrible in week one, week two. They had a bye week three. They came out put up uh, a big win in Montreal, 27-10. So uh, I like what we're seeing from Hamilton taking the next step. I like what we see from Toronto. Their piece is really starting to gel. Shame their game was postponed this week. And, I mean, as you said, Stamps-Bombers last night was was fantastic. And, hey, how about the rookie quarterback, Jake Meyer, second-ever game, setting a Calgary Stampeders record with 17 consecutive completions to start the game. I mean, when, when, when you look at the quarterbacks Calgary's had over the years, talking Doug Flutie, you're talking Dave Dickinson, Henry Burris, Bolivar Mitchell, the fact that you got a rookie setting records is, is sensational. So I thought the CFL had a really nice bounce back week. The aforementioned Dave Dickinson, he is the head coach, obviously, of the Calgary Stampeders in charge of that offense, and Jake Mayer right now. Is there any better situation in the Canadian Football League for a rookie to get dropped into offensively than that particular offense? Well, you make a great point, yeah. From from John John Huffnagel all the way down, I mean, that organization has done a great job of, of developing talent at the quarterback position. I mean, Nick Arbuckle was the backup there in 2019, got a chance to start seven games while Mitchell was out with injury and he's moved on and is now entrenched as, as the starter in, in Toronto and played fantastically in week three in his first start with the double blue. He, he beat the Winnipeg blue bombers at home and, and, uh, and, and really had a nice game there at BMO field, putting up 30 points on a, on a good defense. So, you know, there, there's certainly a, a respected quarterback lineage there. Uh, Jake Mayer has said a lot of good things about getting help from from Bo Levi Mitchell, not necessarily in terms of, of X's and O's, but just, you know, votes of confidence, like, hey, go out and sling it. Hey, don't be afraid. Like, you know, this is a quarterback who set records in college um, down in uh, in, in the, uh, the NCAA uh, FCS subdivision. And, uh, you know, the, he, he's never played professional football before. He's still a raw rookie in that sense, but he obviously had a lot of call, a lot of, confidence in college and in his ability to produce and and sling the ball and he obviously has shown that in the early goings of of his cfl career it's something that is very rare right ricky ray did it you know 20 years ago 
coming out of college as a raw rookie and, and having success right away. Chris Streveler did it in Winnipeg in 2018. He's now in the NFL, and, you know, Mayer's the latest one to do it. It was a really impressive performance from Mayer yesterday. John, what did you see in terms of his progression from his first start to what he was able to do for Calgary on the weekend? I think the biggest thing is he didn't put the ball in, in harm's way. He made a couple of really poor decisions early in week three in his debut against Montreal, uh, where you kind of went, oh, geez, okay, if, if this guy is going to come out and, <laughs> and be throwing in a double coverage like this, um, th- this could be a really long night for the Sams. But in fact, they came back, they won the game, 28-22. Um, the defense did play well, forced a couple of, of turnovers in that game. Um, that, that really helped Mayer out down the stretch. But, you know, he, he, was, he was borderline flawless in, in Winnipeg. He did not put the ball in, in harm's way at all. And let's also not forget, and, and you do credit the offensive line, of course, in Calgary, their protection schemes. But Winnipeg has some just unbelievable pass rushers. You want to talk about Willie Jefferson, Jackson, Jeff Coat, Adam Big Hill uh, was, was blitzing constantly yesterday. Uh, Casey Sales, I think, is a really exciting rookie that, that Winnipeg has at defensive tackle. You know, the, 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 the front seven in Bomberland is, is as good as any in the CFL. And Mayer stood in the pocket, got rid of the ball quickly, made really good decisions. And, and again, if you can go an entire game without, without turning the ball over, Calgary did have a fumble from Josh Huff. But, you know, not only did he not throw a pick, but Mayer, I, I don't think, once put the ball really in harm's way and when you can do that and throw for 300 yards because he did hit 300 yards which not many quarterbacks have done this year um that's that's i mean it's it's exceptionally impressive there's no other way to say it it's it's off the charts for a rookie uh being put into a a challenging situation so he certainly passed that test with flying colors yeah, it's a great point. You know, it's easy to have a, a higher completion percentage or easier anyways and not put the ball in danger when you're when you're doing everything short and not going downfield. But that wasn't the case with Jake Mayer, as you said, able to rack up over 300 yards through the air. The other specific player I wanted to ask you about in that game is on the other side uh, for the Blue Bombers, and it's Andrew Harris. He gets on the field for the first time since the 2019 Grey Cup after missing the first couple of weeks uh, of this season, and he had a great game very strong on the ground gets into the end zone as well what did you see from Andrew Harris in his return to the field well I mean considering he's a 34 year old running back which you know 30 34 year old as a, as a quarterback is one thing but to be 34 I mean that that's like you know you, it's like 60 at any other position right like I, I ran the numbers before the season started and if you're looking for a thousand yard rushers who, who achieved that at age 34 or older there's, there's one person who's ever done it in, uh, in the NFL. That's John Riggins. He did it twice, uh, though he did have a break in the middle of his career in Washington. And north of the border, two guys have done it, and that's Mike Pringle and George Reed, who are literally the two top rushers of all time in, in, in the CFL. So if, if he's chasing 1,000 yards, which is going to be – I mean, it's going to be tough to get there considering he missed the first three games of the season. Um, but, you know, if that's, if that's the type of – let's say maybe, uh, you know, pace that he can maintain in a shortened season, that thousand yard pace of, you know, 75 to 80 yards a game, which is what he had last night. He had 81 and a touchdown. It's, it's really impressive. I mean, he's, he hadn't played a game in almost two years, right? It's, it's been something like 21 months since he was the MVP of the gray cup in 2019. And he didn't show signs of rust. He, he, he was there. He was very sound in pass protection. Zach Caleros, 
did not have a ton of pressure in his face all night, even when Calgary sent extra rushers. And, you know, he, he ran the ball well. He ran the ball hard, made a, made a couple nice jump cuts, made a couple nice power moves, running over players. And he caught two passes out of the backfield after the game. He told the media that there were a couple plays he wishes he could have back, things he thought he could have done better. But he also said it wasn't wind-related. It wasn't uh, having to do with fatigue. He felt ready to go, which, again, considering it had been forever since he played, he's 34 and he got 19 touches, uh, I think is, is very impressive. So we'll have to see if he can keep it up because obviously the recovery time after a game goes up and up as you get older and you take those kind of hits. But for a debut performance for 2021, I, I was very impressed with what Andrew Harris did. He looked just like his old self. John Hodge of Three Down Nation joining us here today on Rinto and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. 18-16, probably not indicative of how entertaining that game was. 24-12 might flatter that game between the BC Lions and the Ottawa Red Blacks <laughs> that happened on Saturday. But the Lions don't care because that's a good road victory. It was a balanced road victory. It was one in which they lost a couple of starting receivers as well. As the BC Lions head into their bye week at 2-2, two and two, what do you make of them through the first month of the season? Well, they're they're awful hot and cold. You know, I, I thought they looked really good in a week two victory over the Calgary Stampeders at McMahon. It's not an easy place to win. Um, that being said, once it was later revealed that Bull Levi Mitchell was dealing with a fractured fibula and was going to be going to the six game injured list, you kind of went, okay, uh, that makes sense. Uh, put, puts it in perspective, maybe a little bit more why the Lions had as much success as they did, especially when the Lions kind of laid an egg, honestly, in week three, uh, losing to the Edmonton Elks at, at home, which was a pretty disappointing performance for them. So I think they, they did a good job of capitalizing on Ottawa. As, as you said, it wasn't uh, necessarily the most uh, offensive-oriented game, right? The, the Bombers and, and, uh, and Stamps didn't put up a ton of points, but they put over 700 yards of offense up on the field. BC at Ottawa was a little bit more of a, a, little bit more of a slugfest, but – I mean, you, you can't control the team you play. All you could do is, is play them, right? And, and I thought the Lions did a good job. It was nice to see Mike O'Reilly get over 300 yards passing again. Uh, Shaq Cooper in the run game, they got him going a little bit, um, which was nice to see. I thought he was really good in short bursts uh, with the Elks in 2019, and I was really excited to see what he could do in Vancouver as a free agent addition. So seeing him uh, break the one you know long rush, I think it was a 30-yarder, um, I thought was very exciting, and I, I just think this team has to get more more consistent as the season goes on. And, and you could probably, in fairness, say that about all the teams coming out of the pandemic. But I want this team to use the bye week to kind of decide, okay, what is what is our identity? What is it that we do really well? Because currently, you know, they, they they've had 300 yard passing weeks, and then they've had weeks where where Michael Riley, for instance, week three struggles to complete anything and that was with the healthy receiving core he had a ton of injuries in his receiving core in ottawa yet yet played really well um you know defensively uh they've had a few weeks week one for instance in saskatchewan where that front seven looked really good and uh that wasn't necessarily the case against ottawa i thought that 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 defensive line you know has, has looked better at times they've they've looked a little more dangerous at times so i want to see them settle in build a bit more of an identity and and, and really just get more consistent, I think, on both sides of the ball. Ottawa's been consistent, consistently underperforming on offense. In fact, they're running the no-fence offense right now in the <laughs> nation's capital, which is a surprise given the head coach. Paul Lapolice, for anybody who knows this league, 
He's been seen as an offensive guru. I can only imagine how frustrating this is to him. He called their offense right now unacceptable. What is the biggest problem for a team that has only scored a grand total of 38 points in three games? I think at the end of the day, this is a this is just a situation where the personnel is not good enough. I mean, we, we know that Paul Appelese is a great offensive coordinator. He did great things and in you know a four-year stint most recently with Winnipeg, but he's he's been elsewhere and and done great things as an OC. Um, you know the 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 personnel, and, and I don't think the problem is necessarily Matt Nichols. I know he's taken a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of flack over the last few days, but let, let's be honest. In Winnipeg, he was working behind the best offensive line in the league. He had the best dual threat running back you know, alongside him in the backfield. The receiving core in Winnipeg was never elite while he was there, but it was always good enough. And in Ottawa, he's going to a situation where I, I wrote in my Monday mailbag column this week, you know, I, I don't think maybe outside of R.J. Harris, the, the, the Red Blacks have a receiver who'd be starting for anybody else in the league. Uh, Timothy Flanders started the year as the running back. He got hurt. Justin Davis, former L.A. Rams running back, came in. He played in a, he played in a Super Bowl for them, and uh, – I don't think he did much to, to earn the starting job. Um, you could say part of it's the offensive line, but he also fumbled late in the game, which is, of course, never going to endear you to a coaching staff when you fumble in your first CFL start coming out of the backfield. So, And then, and then of course, the offensive line. I, I think the offensive line is, is ninth right now in the CFL. I think they're the worst unit in the league. So, you know, it, it's a personnel issue. Um, I think that Paul Apolis and Marcel Desjardins, the head coach and general manager, respectively, there should have put their heads together before the season and said, okay, what can we do to upgrade this group? Because we don't have enough talent yet. Um, and that was not something that I think most people have been surprised by. I talked to a lot of personnel people, coaches in the CFL ahead of the season who said, yeah, I don't know what, what Ottawa is planning to do. Cause I look at their roster right now and I don't think it's good enough. And, uh, you know, obviously, I think Ottawa did feel their roster was good enough because they didn't do anything to fix it, right? Naaman Roosevelt, two-time thousand-yard receiver with the Riders, has been a free agent now for for over a month. He, he got cut late in camp by the Alouettes. Well, the Red Blacks haven't brought him in, and there, there's other guys like that. You know, I'm not even just talking about free agency in February. I'm talking about what can you do now? What can you do when the season starts to upgrade your roster? They haven't done it, so uh, I'm I'm. You know, I'm not bullish on them down the stretch this season. I think, you know, they, they really missed the boat when it came to upgrading their personnel when they had the chance. And, you know, it's a shame because, as you said, Paul Apolis is an offensive guru, and I, I just don't think he has the ingredients right now to make things work in the nation's capital. We're heading into the Labor Day weekend slate of games, which, of course, is always really important for the CFL. And fingers crossed that Edmonton will be able to participate. They've gotten several uh, days of negative tests in a row now. Purely from a football on-the-field perspective, what's the most enticing, interesting matchup for you on this Labor Day slate? Well, I, I think all three games are, are going to be really good. Um, that That being said... Um, if, if I had to pick one, uh, and, and call me biased because I am on the prairies, but I, I think I'm mostly looking forward to the, the Bombers Riders because right now they're the top two teams in the CFL. Uh, they're one, two, and, and one order or another, and essentially every power ranking, and uh, also the standings, right? The Riders are the, the only CFL team without a loss, and, and the Bombers are, are, are the only other three win team at three and one. So it's. <laughs> historically not a good day for the bombers they are one in 14 
in the Labor Day Classic since 2005. Um, the only win came in tw- uh, 2016 when Justin Medlock kicked the last second field goal. So I'm sure they're hungry to uh, to get that win. But that's probably the game I'm looking forward to the most. That that said, I think the two games Monday are going to be great as well. I think uh, you know the, the Argos are the biggest surprise so far this season in a positive way. Certainly, they went outside a ton of talent. They got. You know, Nick Arbuckle, Eric Rogers, DeVaris Daniels, Cordero Law, they went outside a bunch of former Stampeders. And then defensively, they added a ton of Canadian talent, Cameron Judge, Enoch Mwamba. And it was just a question of, is this young coaching staff going to get this team to gel? And the answer so far emphatically through three weeks has been yes, because they've had a tough schedule. They opened in Calgary, then went back-to-back with Winnipeg, and they're sitting number one in the East right now, two and one. Um you know, I, I, so I, I think that's going to be a great matchup. And the Ticats finally hit the gas in week four. They really stumbled out of the gate, which was disappointing considering they were an early great cup favorite. So I think that matchup, Hamilton-Toronto, is going to be good. And, hey, the battle of, of Alberta is maybe not quite as uh, as sexy as it once was, given the fact that both teams are, you know, below 500. I don't know the last time both teams were below 500 going into Labor Day. My guess is it's been at least 15, if not 20-plus years. Um, however, those teams are hungry. And again, we already talked and raved about Jake Mayer. If Jake Mayer continues on this trajectory, all of a sudden this game goes from, oh man, this, this might've been good if Bo Levi Mitchell was playing too. Okay. This is going to be a great matchup. You got the Elks coming off their COVID scare. You got the Stamps coming off, you know, a really tough loss to the Bombers. You could easily argue they deserve to win that game last night. So I'm looking at all three, to be quite honest, probably the Prairie battle the most, but Hey, I'm going to be sitting on the couch for six hours on Monday and enjoying those games as well. John, thank you very much for your time. You can follow him on Twitter at John D. Hodge, as I do, and I recommend that to all of our listeners as well. Thank you very much for your time. Look forward to another good week. The Labor Day edition weekend of CFL football. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me, guys, anytime. That is John Hodge, and you can read his work at 3 Down Nation. As well, he brings up some good points. Some CFL news to pass along here this morning. Saskatchewan is following suit, and so is Edmonton, quite frankly, with a lot of teams around the CFL. Jamie saying, all right, going to be mandatory for you to be vaccinated to see our games. Now, they're not doing this right away, and they're not doing it for Labor Day weekend. In the case of Saskatchewan, September 17th is the day that they are targeting, which will be their second home game from now. They've got the one coming up this weekend with the Bombers. And in the case of Edmonton, it's not till October, which is a little bit surprising. Now, I haven't looked at Edmonton's schedule to see how many home games they have in between now and then, but that's a long time away. Yeah, that's a pretty pretty good chunk of time to give people to uh, to adjust to this and, and get vaccinated. Now, they play, I think their, their next home game after the one on Monday is not till the end of September, so September 28th, but then they do have one on, on October 8th as well, so... You know, they – oh, excuse me, no, sorry. They have they have several home games uh, before yeah. that. They have one on the 18th. They have – I was looking at the wrong column. So they do have chances, you know, earlier games that are still going to be under the old rules. They're, they're waiting a little while to put this one into place. Yeah, they don't – they're not going to do it before the game against Calgary on September 11th. They've got a home game, theoretically, the next week. Again, this is a team that had 13 players. One of those proved to be a false positive test, so it's 13 players – that were COVID positive, 
And if they can get past that situation, they got another game on September 18th as well, and they're not going to institute it that quickly. Back to one of the original points we made there. We talk a lot in the NFL, Jamie, about quarterbacks going into the right situation and the right play caller, and we always rave about Andy Reid. Kyle Shanahan's a guy who seems to get the best out of whichever quarterback he's using. We can talk about that a little bit more next segment because a pretty unique approach he took with the San Francisco 49ers this weekend. I put Dave Dickinson and the Stamps in that category in the CFL. If I were a quarterback trying to start my first game in a new league, new team, that's the team I'd want to start for because Dickinson and that staff seem to be able to identify what is going to make their quarterbacks most comfortable and do that offensively. Well, and they have the track record of doing it now, right, with Nick Arbuckle, as, as John Hodge brought up. And, you know, Jake Mayer, he's not there yet. You know, had a really good game on the weekend, but you can't say, oh, well, he's a success story like that. But he's on that path to potentially be, right? And then it's just another mark, another piece of evidence to exactly what you're saying that, yeah, hey, Dave Dickinson knows how to get the best out of a young quarterback. And, you, and if you are a young QB interested in an opportunity, it's a good place to go. They were third and one and a half on their own 23-yard line yesterday, Jamie, and he let Mayer throw downfield, a completion that ended up going for 41 yards, and Josh Hoff ends up fumbling, as, as John Hodge mentioned. But that's some trust in your rookie pivot. All right, let's go. We're on our own 23-yard line, and we need to get more than a yard here. Light it up. Throw the ball yeah. downfield. Throw it downfield. Well, yeah, we're not doing – we're not – you know, just handing the ball off and trying to pick up that yard and a half. We're putting it in your hands and empowering you to take a big shot downfield in a big moment. I do want to talk about the unique approach that was taken. There are some interesting battles in the NFL. The preseason has wrapped up, and there's some new audio with regards to the offer sheet that Carolina has put in front of Yesperi Kokanyemi. You'll hear it next right here on Rinto and Sermon with Jamie Dodd.